got questions? The Bible has answers. We'll help you find them. Welcome to the God Questions Podcast with Shay Hoodman, President of God Questions Ministries. Welcome to the God Questions Podcast. This is episode three. I've got a special guest with us today, a good friend of mine, I'm Jonathan McClatchy. He is a professor at Sattler College and also a student at Southern Evangelical Seminary. But also, a um, little over a decade ago, Jonathan served as one of our first interns here at Got Questions. He wrote a bunch of articles for us, and I can say, honestly, he's one of the most intelligent people I know. One of my most humbling moments was playing chess against Jonathan and having him beat me easily without even looking at the chess boards. So that's still a very fond memory. So, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Shay. It's great to be here. And even better, he's got a nice Scottish accent, so it'll give you something fun to listen to. So, Jonathan, I, I've been following you lately, and I've seen you having a lot of conversations with Christians who've left the faith, who are struggling with faith. And so that's the primary thing I wanted to talk to you about this morning. So what, in your experience, is the main reason that people who previously proclaimed themselves to be Christians decide to leave the Christian faith? Well, I wouldn't say that there's a main reason per se. There's a whole uh, consilience of reasons that can cause someone to leave the faith. It's not simply a, a one-size-fits-all type of scenario. But uh, there are some recurring themes or recurring patterns that we observe when we talk to people who um, have left the faith or are uh, considering leaving the faith and have uh, real doubts concerning the veracity of the gospel. And there's a number of common uh, intellectual pitfalls that I think can lead people to unnecessarily or prematurely conclude that Christianity is in fact false. And so that leads to people uh, leaving the faith. One of those is um, the need for cognitive closure, which is which is a condition where many people, uh, in order to be uh, satisfied or content in their worldview, uh, need an answer, uh, a satisfactory answer to all questions that could be raised in objection to that worldview. And so in the absence of completely satisfying answers to every question that could be asked, they um, they feel that uh, they cannot be intellectually honest and yet retain their uh, the worldview to which they previously subscribed. And I would argue that uh, that there's no shame for a Christian to have unanswered questions. I think that one can rationally maintain that Christianity is true, even in the presence of unanswered questions. Uh, the question is not other unanswered questions or unanswered objections to the message of the gospel. Rather, the question ought to be, are the more numerous and more substantive objections to believing the gospel to be true or not believing it to be true? And in my assessment, there are far more numerous and far more substantive objections to disbelieving the gospel than there are to, in fact, believing the gospel. So um, um, I think that's um, a major issue. So, for instance, um, it's it's okay to say that we don't have a fully satisfactory answer to the problem of evil. God knows things that we don't. But there are also um, confirmatory reasons that tend to uh, support and corroborate the veracity of the Christian faith. And so uh, the argument that I would present is that on balance, uh, the evidence uh, trends towards uh, the the truth of Christianity rather than against it. Um, another issue that tends to get people tangled up is a failure to distinguish between objections that carry high stakes and objections that carry low stakes. So um, an objection that carries high stakes would be something like an objection to the historicity of Jesus or an objection to the resurrection, right? If those propositions are false, then Christianity also is false. 
and that would be an objection that carries high stakes. Um, whereas there are also objections that are that carry low stakes, issues that Christians can legitimately disagree over. For example, an objection to um, the or an ethical concern that could be raised to the doctrine of eternal conscious torment uh, as a concept of hell, which is a traditional Christian view, although there are theologians, most notably perhaps John Stott, who would subscribe to an annihilationist view, or sometimes known as a conditionalist view of hell, which I think is a defensible view, at least from, from scripture. And, and so um, and, and a moral objection to eternal conscious torment, in my opinion, if it goes through, at best should uh, cause one to consider an alternative theological system, such as annihilationism, rather than giving up Christianity in total. Another example is uh, the age of the earth. Uh, many people are raised in, in very conservative churches that basically insist that unless you think that the earth is 6,000 years old, then, then you cannot be a consistent uh, Christian or the Christianity somehow commits you to thinking that the earth is 6,000 years old. And so when they go to college and university and discover evidence that actually the earth is much older than 6,000 years old, and because, they've been taught, because they've been taught to wed those two propositions, Christianity and the age of the earth, instead of just revising their interpretation of the early chapters of Genesis, they give up Christianity in toto. And so that's another example of failing to distinguish between an objection of high stakes and an objection of low stakes. Instead of simply shifting or tweaking their theology, they give up their Christian faith. Um, another issue that um, often leads to deconversion is uh, faulty epistemology. Um, and epistemology, uh, for listeners who are um, not so acquainted with philosophy, is basically the branch of philosophy that deals with how we acquire knowledge. How do we reliably acquire true beliefs about the world? And um, the, the way that I um, would understand evidence is uh, when, when I'm trying to measure or how, how strong a piece of evidence is, I want to know how probable is this piece of evidence given that my hypothesis is true? And how probable is this same piece of evidence given that my hypothesis is false? And to the extent that that piece of evidence is more probable given my hypothesis is true, um, or, or to the extent that the, that ratio is top heavy, that is more probable given the truth of the hypothesis than given the falsity of the hypothesis, that's how strong that particular piece of evidence is. And often I, I find that, that people have this false conception of evidence that in order to be evidence for, for a proposition, it needs to uh, carry the day, as it were, on its own. It needs to be able to fully support and fully justify the conclusion. Um, and that's simply uh, incorrect. A, a piece of evidence can raise the probability of a proposition being true without by itself being sufficient to justify that proposition. And then another misconception that people make about, about evidence is that the, if you have a single, if you have any evidence going against Christianity, uh, or if you admit the presence of evidence going against Christianity, then that itself is a justification for rejection of Christianity. But that's just not the way evidence works. I mean, all scientific theories have anomalous data and uh, data that doesn't quite fit the paradigm. And it's quite legitimate to interpret that anomalous data within the parameters of, of the paradigm uh, provided that it's a well-supported uh, thesis or a well-supported paradigm. Um, and so it's contrary to common conception. It's not actually um, always bad practice to invoke ad hoc auxiliary hypotheses to explain a piece of, of data that doesn't quite comport with your paradigm. It's only bad practice if you, if you fail to admit that your overall thesis has taken a probabilistic hit. So evidence um, that goes, it's okay to admit that there's evidence going against Christianity, and I think there is, um, so long as you have sufficient confirming evidence that is, that is adequate to 
uh, overcome or overwhelm that disconfirming evidence. Um, and I would maintain also that there is. And the way that the positive case for Christianity works is not in terms of a single piece of spectacular or extraordinary evidence that all by itself confirms Christianity, but rather it's a whole cumulative case from multiple pieces of mutually corroborating evidence that supports Christianity when taken cumulatively or holistically. And so I think some of these epistemological nuances are quite important to bear in mind. Um, and finally, um, another issue that I often encounter is unmet expectations, where people have been told uh, that to be a Christian means that they have this inner witness of the Holy Spirit that by itself um, authenticates the veracity of Christianity, and they should have this fuzzy feeling or some sort of experience, experiential encounter with God that is in itself veridical or truth attesting. And many Christians, including myself, don't have that sort of immediate veridical uh, inner witness experience. And so um, it's, it's similar to in some certain charismatic churches where there, where people are told that if you, unless you can speak in tongues, you're not a real Christian. And uh, I think that's quite dangerous because it sets up false expectations and often leads to people abandoning uh, the Christian faith. So there's a few of the top reasons, I think, which conspire to resulting in apostasy. In my experience at Got Questions, probably the most common we get is people who will abandon the faith or have strong doubts about the faith due to an issue that Christians have been answering adequately for thousands of years. Um, just recently, we had someone come to us and say, I can't believe in God anymore because in the Old Testament, the prophet Elisha called down God to curse the little children who had made fun of him for being bald, and God sent uh, bears to maul these little kids. And that's such a, one, a tragic misunderstanding of what's actually occurring in that passage. But it's things like that, that you know, you're not the first person to discover this in the Bible. You're not the first person to bring this up. It's something that concerns you. So the fact that this person was assuming, well, Christians don't have an answer for this, therefore... I'm going to leave the Christian faith on such a topic that one, we do have multiple answers for, but then also it's not a, the way she, she was understanding it was tragic, but it's in itself is, does not raise to the level of an issue that would cause you to completely abandon the faith that does have multiple positive arguments for. So it's things like that, that can be really frustrating is like, why one, are you allowing this to cause you to question the validity of your entire faith? But two, why are you just assuming that there's no answer for this when uh, there clearly are. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think oftentimes uh, people will, people allege certain contradictions in say the gospel accounts. Um, and for many people, a single demonstrable contradiction or discrepancy is itself sufficient to reject the Christian faith. Um, and I would reject that sort of epistemology because we know from plenty of cases of, of eyewitness testimony that you find legitimate variations in eyewitness memory. To take a modern example, the Titanic sank um, just, just a little over 109 years ago in, in, on April 14, 1912, and there were eyewitness reports, uh, some of which said that the Titanic went down in one piece, and some of which said the Titanic broke in two. But we don't conclude from that that the Titanic didn't go down, or even that these eyewitness reports are not substantially trustworthy. Um, so there's what I call an epistemic asymmetry, so that the, such that the positive confirmatory evidences for the reliability, the substantial trustworthiness of the Gospels and Acts are piece for piece of greater epistemic or evidential weight 
than the um, equivalent counter evidences because when we calibrate our expectations of what eyewitness testimony looks like and we find in both ancient and modern cases of eyewitness testimony that there are discrepancies uh, we can then infer that eyewitness testimony actually predicts that you, you'll find certain variations in eyewitness memory and so when you actually find variations in eyewitness memory in the gospel accounts um, it can be taken as strong disconfirming evidence that these accounts are not grounded in reliable, substantially uh, reliable eyewitness testimony. But when we look at the positive confirmatory evidences, that is unexpected in untrustworthy testimony that's not grounded in, in uh, the testimony of eyewitnesses. Um, and therefore, you have this um, evidential asymmetry, if you will. Um, to take another example um, of that sort of ev evidential asymmetry, when we're dealing with um, the topic of predictive prophecy, very specific uh, fulfilled prophecy um, is, I would argue, of greater evidential weight than apparently unfulfilled prophecy. So um, if, if, you have a, if you have an improbable fulfillment, then you have a very top-heavy base factor where you've got this likelihood ratio where that evidence is, is much more probable given the hypothesis and given the falsehood of the hypothesis. Whereas when it comes to apparently unfulfilled prophecy, and I, I've written a detailed article where I examined this, very often there's a, a plausible alternative interpretation of the text. And so um, it provides less evidence that's disconfirmatory of, of scripture than the, than the specific fulfilled instances of prophecy provide in confirmation of scripture. So some of these nuances um, in terms of epistemology, I think, are, are important to keep in mind. Exactly. It's, um, it's amazing to both see the tremendous amount of evidence there is for the Christian faith and to draw comfort from that, but ultimately to also recognize that the Christian faith is a faith, it is ultimately um, even in Hebrews 11, it's, we accept God's existence by faith. So to, to require overwhelming evidence that can't be disproven, that's beyond the scope of what even the Bible claims for Christianity. So it's, it's a good reminder that faith is required, but that doesn't mean faith is not a blind leap, leap in the dark. Faith is a small step into a well-lit room where hundreds of millions of people are already standing. So it's yeah, helpful I, to keep in mind. Yeah, I, I would argue that faith is proportional to the amount of evidence you have. So the more evidence I have that Christianity is true, the more inclined I am to exercise faith in that to which I have intellectually assented. Um, and as you said, faith is not a blind faith. It's often said that um, Hebrews 11.1 1 claims that faith is blind, which says that the faith is the substance of things hoped for, the, the evidence of things unseen, but, or the conviction of things unseen. The problem with that interpretation is that if you look at the context carefully in Hebrews 11, it's saying that, that faith is trusting God for this future un, as yet unrealized promises in view of his past faithfulness. So it's actually in view of the evidence that we look forward at God's promises that haven't yet been fulfilled in the same way that when a man gets married, he trusts his spouse to perform her wedding vows, not because he's seen her perform her wedding vows, they're as yet unseen because she hasn't had a chance to fulfill them yet. But nonetheless, he trusts that she will perform them in view of his past experience of her historical faithfulness. And so likewise, we trust God with his future promises because of his fulfillment of past promises. So it's based on, on evidence. And uh, that indeed is the, the connotation of the Greek word pistis, which means faith that is is trusting in that to which you've already intellectually assented. And I would argue that in the biblical sense, it's based on good reasons and evidence. Absolutely. So let's jump to the follow-up question. So when someone we know, someone we love, someone we've followed who claimed to be a Christian departs from the faith, what should be our response, both 
our response to that person, but then also our response inwardly. When someone was maybe instrumental in helping us grow as Christians departs from the faith, how, how does that impact us personally? Sure. So first of all, I, I would argue that we should we should respond to someone that leaves the faith with compassion. We uh, should try to empathize with their situation because a, a lot of these people uh, legitimately, um, they were very passionate as Christians that left the faith uh, and it uh, they, they underwent immense trauma. Uh, and uh, sometimes they ended up with uh, depression as a result and had to go through therapy. So um, a lot of these people have have gone through a really difficult time, and although I think that they made that uh, decision on the basis of either incomplete information or irrationally, um, nonetheless we have to take seriously the fact that uh, these aren't th- these are people that have have gone through a lot of difficulty and, and often uh, depression and and uh, anxiety and immense anxiety in leaving the faith, and so uh, I think it's important to show empathy. I I also think it's important to resist the temptation uh, to unload all the information at once, uh, right? So this is something that I sometimes struggle with. Someone says they left the faith and they give uh, what is, uh, to my mind, quite a a bad reason for their loss of faith. And I want to just dump all this information on them to uh, refute their their argument. And um, I think that that can be perceived as drinking from a fire hose almost, and uh, is they're, they're not ready for so much information all at once. So, so be sure to um, give information slowly and over a, a long period of time, more like a drip than a fire hose. And uh, also, of course, pray for them is, is another important thing because um, we actually are instructed in Scripture to, to to be praying people, and so it's important, I think, to, to pray. I think that. Um, apart from the grace of God, we are all blind. And so there's there's no ground, I think, for Christian arrogance. We shouldn't look down on people who are less enlightened than we are, because apart from the grace of God, then we also would be not enlightened. And so we, we need to pray. Um, I, one thing I'd also say uh, is that we should resist um, saying to someone that announces that they've left the faith that they were never a true Christian. This is something that I often encounter Christians uh, saying to former Christians that you were you were never a true Christian. And this is highly offensive, understandably, to ex-Christians because, as I said, many of them were very passionate in their Christian faith and they went through immense depression and anxiety uh, coming out of Christianity. And so it, um, and it, it shuts down productive dialogue. Um, I understand that um, among many Christians, and this is also my own reading of scripture, that if someone leaves the faith, then that raises questions as to whether they um, truly knew Christ in the sense that, that whether they were ever saved. And I, I my reading of scripture is that uh, if someone is truly in Christ, then they will remain firm and persevere to the end. However, I think it's important to distinguish between what I would call uh, Christian in the soteri- soteriological sense. Soteriology is a study of salvation in Christian theology and a Christian in the propositional assent sense. Right. So obviously someone that doesn't believe Christianity is true is going to reject that anyone's a Christian in the soteriological sense because they don't believe in real salvation. So no one's no one has a relationship with Christ at all, according to a a non-Christian, because Christ doesn't exist. Um, So I I think it's important to to draw that distinction between a Christian in the theological, soteriological sense and a Christian in the propositional assent sense. And I think that it's uh, insensitive to say that uh, someone wasn't a true Christian and that um, we should refrain from from saying that because it, it leads to confusion. And as I said, it, it shuts down productive dialogue. I, I, I'd also ask people who describe themselves as former Christians 
what were the key issues. I, I always want to understand what were the key issues that led people out of the faith. And uh, I think that it could even be advisable for you to take notes on what they are saying to show that you, you really want to understand. You're not just listening in order to respond, but you're, you're listening carefully. You're doing more listening than talking. And you're really trying to understand what it was that led them out of the Christian faith. And you might have responses to those, or you might not. If you don't, then that's fine. Just say, um, that's really interesting points you've made there. Let me go and look into those and research those. And then I'll get back to you with a response. That's much better than trying to wing, uh, wing it on a topic that you don't know very well. So um, if, you, if, you do know the, if, you, if you do have a response uh, at hand, then you can give that response, but doing so reasonably and with gentleness and respect, as First um, as Peter says. So, um, yeah, that's, I think, how I would advise one response to someone that uh, announces that they have left the faith. And then for us personally, um, when we're, we're impacted emotionally by seeing someone that we love and respect depart the faith, what's the key point that we can take away that, to reassure us in, in our own faith? So I, I think that we should, no, we should not be impacted just because someone has left the faith because christianity is is true irrespective of who believes it um and and what people do with it it's is true because there's there's good reason there's good reasons to believe it to be true there's good evidence um and so i would advise people to get themselves grounded on the public evidence for christianity and when, when someone tells me that they've left they've left the christian faith I'm less interested in, in who it is that's left. I'm more interested in why they left, what their reasons were. And so um, I think it's important to find out what their reasons are and to subject them to scrutiny, um, do the research, um, dig into the claims that they've made and come to a, a verdict for yourself. I, I think that a lot of times people, they get so hung up on particular objections, which are, which are difficult, such as the problem of evil or the problem of divine hiddenness. But because they're not grounded on the positive confirming reasons, they miss the forest for the trees and miss the avalanche of positive confirmatory reasons that tends to support and corroborate the veracity of the Christian faith. So I think it's important to, to be well grounded in those so that you can view uh, counter evidence in the context of the big picture. Well, that's excellent, Jonathan. So thank you for sharing all that. I, like I said, I've been reading some of your interactions with people who have departed from the Christian faith. And I found them very um, encouraging and just powerful to see how you've interacted with them. And it's a great lesson for all of us. So Jonathan, thank you for joining us on the show. Um, for those who may not know Jonathan well, we will have uh, links to his website and some of ways that you can follow him on both our uh, podcast page, which is podcast.gotquestions.org. And also on our YouTube channel in the com in the description field, there will be links to Jonathan's material there as well. So again, thank you for joining us. This has been the Got Questions podcast with Jonathan McClatchy. Got questions? The Bible has answers. We'll help you find them. Your questions, biblical answers. The Got Questions podcast. Check us out at podcast.gotquestions.org.